I invite you to uh, turn in your Bible to Psalm 77. I'm going to be uh, using the NIV translation of Psalm 77 tonight. I think the verbs uh, in verses 1 through 5 particularly are best read in the past tense. And um, as the author is telling us about a painful spiritual uh, depression and how he was rescued from that. And so uh, we're going to read Psalm 77, a psalm of Asaph. Let's give our attention to God's word tonight. Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused, and my spirit inquired. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in, ha- in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God, the waters saw you and writhed, the very depths were convulsed. The the clouds poured down water, the skies resounded with thunder, your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind, your lightning lit up the world, the earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for this psalm, and we thank you, Lord, for your, the beauty and the power of your word as the rain comes and falls to the ground and makes things green and grow. Lord, so your word uh, always accomplishes the task for which it was sent. And I pray that, Lord God, you would send your word tonight to comfort us, encourage us, to equip our minds and hearts as we remember, Lord, your saving love for us in Jesus Christ and what that means as we go through trials today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, uh, Charles Spurgeon was a... Um, maybe one of the most, if not the most eloquent preacher in the history of the Christian church. Uh, Spurgeon was a a, a great and godly man of God, um, profoundly used by God uh, in his his ministry. Thousands were converted. Um, Spurgeon um, was a a brilliant, he was a a genius of a man. Um, Just some interesting facts about Spurgeon. He typically read six books a week. And uh, he could remember what he read and where it could be found even years later. Also, uh, something that stuns me is Spurgeon usually didn't start writing his sermons until Saturday evening. Um, 
I am no Spurgeon. And uh, only Spurgeon, of course, could do that. Um, he once addressed an audience of 23,600 people without a microphone or any mechanical amplification at all. Uh, during his lifetime, he's estimated to have preached to 10 million people. Uh, his sermons uh, came off hot off the presses every morning, Monday morning, uh, were um, sold uh, to the public, uh, thousands and thousands of copies translated into 20-some different languages. Uh, a great man. But did you also know that Spurgeon suffered tremendously from depression? It began when he was a young man, 22 years old, and he suffered a, a great trauma in his life. He was preaching to a packed audience of about 7,000 people, and some idiot in the crowd yelled out fire, thinking it would be cute, and um, there was a stampede, and in the stampede towards the exits, seven people were trampled to death, and 30 were um, very seriously injured. Uh, it, it, it just nearly undid Spurgeon. Uh, it shattered his nerves. Uh, he... He dealt with anxiety for the rest of his life. On top of that, he struggled with a variety of health issues, um, and uh, those along with the normal sorrows of ministry contributed to a lifelong and sometimes suicidal bout, uh, battle with depression. Depression, as you know, is uh, the fastest growing met mental health issue of our day, uh, particularly among teenagers and particularly among girls. But nearly all of God's children have wrestled with those dark nights of the soul. Maybe it's brought about just by clinical depression or by, or by uh, it's our natural response to some great uh, trial, some great heartache that has come into our life. Could be health issues, family issues, things with our children, uh, things in our marriage, uh, difficulties at work or at school. Uh, these are things that, that weigh on us. They sap our strength. They, they leave us spiritually vulnerable and weak and uh, and, and, and then if you're in a time like that, or maybe your life is, is, is just smoothing, sailing, uh, smoothing, uh, sailing smoothly along, and, uh, and then suddenly there's a, a great tragedy, a devastating loss. And that can, that, can, um, that can really wreak havoc on your faith. I was reading a book just this past week by um, John Anmuchekwa, and uh, he's got a nice little book on prayer uh, put out by Nine Marks, and he, uh, he recounts that uh, his... When his 32-year-old brother, in perfect health, just suddenly died. Uh, the doctors could not figure out why. There, was, there, were, there were no reasons. He just collapsed and was gone, and no one could figure it out. And John just talks about how, how deeply that shook his faith. What kind of God would do this to his, to his children? Uh, why, why, would, why would God bring not only his death, but the mystery of it? And, and he was asking and raging uh, against God, asking all the questions we find here in Psalm 77. This is, this is, these are things that God's children experience. Uh, the, the psalm itself divides naturally into two parts. In verses 1 through 9, we have the recounting of Asaph's despair. And then in verses 10 through 20, he records the path of his recovery. And so we'll just take it tonight very simply in that order. First, looking at verses 1 through 9, the hurt. The pain of Psalm 77 is a spiritual pain, but it's brought about by physical hardships, by, by some circumstance in his life. Uh, the, he begins by saying, uh, when I was in distress, uh, the, the ESV says, uh, in the day of my trouble, that's where the problem began. In the day of my trouble, we're not... We're not told what kind of trouble it was. We don't need to know. Uh, God's children experience a great variety of distressing 
things. We have days of trouble. Some of you are maybe in that experience tonight. You're in a season of pain because of some hardship or some heartache, usually related to either maybe health issues or people that we love, often our children. The unique experience, you see, of, uh, of God's people, when they come to difficult, painful, heartbreaking circumstances, one of the unique experiences of the children of God is that we're left to wrestle not just with the circumstance, but we're left to wrestle with faith questions. Where is God? And so that's the question that Asaph is asking in, in verse 2. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. I saw it at night I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. Uh, these aren't sort of hypothetical or theoretical, um, esoteric reasonings that, that's going through uh, Asaph's mind. This is, a, this is a heart anguished cry. Where's God? And, and, and he's not going to be comforted until that question gets resolved. Um, I'm sure that you've, you've seen a little child fall down and maybe uh, scrape their knee. And someone comes along to pick them up, um, but it's not mom. And, and so the little guy, uh, you know, you can pick him up and you can assure him that he's, he's going to be okay um, and soothe, try to soothe him, but his screams just get louder. It, what, he's not going to be comforted until he's brought to his mother, and, and that's Asaph. He's not going to be comforted. You see, whatever the circumstance might be, it's, it's not going to be better until... until he comes and finds himself once again in close fellowship and communion with God. And so he stretches out untiring hands. God, where are you? But God seems absent. Asaph isn't finding uh, comfort. And so um, he's tormented by, by his thoughts. He's not sleeping well, right? He says that he's awake at night alone with his thoughts. Verses 3 through 6, you just have this this uh, references to, to what's going on in his mind. I remembered and I groaned and I meditated, verse 3. I thought about the former days, verse 5. I remembered my song in the night. My heart meditated, verse 6. Maybe you've experienced this. Uh, you're in a time of trial, and, and, and uh, during the day, it's not so bad. During the day, you're busy, you've got responsibilities, you've got obligations, uh, you're engaged with, with, with tasks and with people, and uh, but then... The night comes, and, and we all go to bed, and you're alone there then with your heartache and with your thoughts, and our thoughts can overwhelm us as we wrestle not just with the issue again, but we wrestle with God. The problem that Asaph was experiencing is that as he thought about God in the context of his trouble, it just made things worse. Verse 3 is, is really fascinating. He says, I remembered you, O God. And I groaned, I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. Uh, th that's not how it's supposed to work. When, when, we, um, when we think about God, thoughts of God are supposed to bring comfort and joy and peace into our life, and, but, but Asaph's experience is, is exactly the opposite. And for those of you who've uh, wrestled with God through sleepless nights, you know what this feels like. You see, um, the, the reason thoughts of God can bring groaning instead of joy is, well, on the one hand, it might be because you're just convicted by your sin, and God is, you, you sense the holiness of God, and maybe His indignation. 
and you groan because you don't know how to make it right. Or, or, or maybe the groaning is just caused by your bewilderment that God is punishing you or God has forsaken you and you don't know why. And so your thoughts of God don't bring relief. Your thoughts of God just make the problem all the heavier. Your spirit grows increasingly faint. Well, Asaph is clearly overwhelmed with anxiety as he thinks about God. You kept my eyes from closing, he says. I was too troubled to speak. And so he tried to think about the past and as he lays there in bed at night. Uh, I thought about the former days, the years of long, of long ago. I thought about the times when, when faith was bright. I thought about the times when, when God and I were in close fellowship, in, in sweet communion. But those thoughts didn't help either. Because the, the thoughts of former days, can, they can, in a sense, come back and accuse us. We can, we can think, I used to, God used to be close to me. We used to be in sweet fellowship, and maybe our conscience would condemn us. Yes, that is how it used to be, but now you've sinned. And God's patience has run out. Or, or you can think, yes, that it was, maybe was true in those days, but maybe that was an illusion. That was just your, your religious upbringing talking to you. Maybe the fact is that God is absent and God is unconcerned. Maybe the fact is God doesn't care. I remember reading C.S. Lewis, uh, Grief Observed, when he talks about losing his wife and, and how he wrestled in his mind with what is God like. He says, not that I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion that I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but rather, so this is what God's really like, deceive yourself no longer. Those are the thoughts that are going through Asaph's mind, and those thoughts lead to a series of of really devastating questions concerning God. Verse 7 through 9, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Is Is this it? Is this... Is, is discipline and judgment going to be my story for the rest of my life? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Can you imagine living without God's unfailing love? you have any sense of what your future would look like if there was no unfailing love? Has his promise failed for all time? What would it look like tomorrow morning to get up and know that maybe God's promises are true, but they're not true for you? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Is your relationship with God for the rest of your life now going to be determined by justice and judgment, by displeasure? Are you cut off from God? You ever ask those questions in in a time of trouble? I have. Because you see, it can make total sense to us why God would cut us off. Our conscience accuses us. The devil accuses us. And when you're in the middle of the night, these are terrifying questions to wrestle with. It's not just where is God, but is this what God is like? Has God rejected us? Are we lost? Has his patience with us run out? Are we condemned without any hope for help from God? It's happened in the scriptures, you know, right? If you think about the life of King Saul, 
A man blessed by God. We're told even that the the Spirit anointed him as, as he became king. And yet he was rejected because of his sin. And he died horribly with no hope. No help from God. Judas Iscariot was a man that everyone would have uh, considered one of the faithful disciples of Jesus. But when Judas sinned, there was no hope for repentance. Jesus, in fact, said to him before he went out, it, better that, uh, it had been better for you if you had never been born. What an awful thing for Jesus to say to someone, and, and yet it was absolutely true. Vastly better for Judas had he never been born. And you see, if the answer to Asaph's questions uh, is in the affirmative, if, if you have to uh, say, yes, God has rejected and, and his promises have failed and his mercy has come to an end, if, if, if that's true, then, then, then it's also true that better that Asaph himself had never been born. Because judgment is an awful, awful, unspeakable, horrible thing. There's nothing more terrifying than the thought of being forsaken forever by God. And so these are the, the thoughts that are tormenting Asaph in the, in the night, in the day of his trouble. And where do you go then? You see, where, where do you find comfort? Well, Asaph tells us where he went. Verse 10, Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. From an experiential standpoint, standpoint the, the, the psalm hinges on verse 10. You see, um, a, a wonderful shift happens here. As Asaph has been wrestling with his thoughts, groaning with his thoughts of God and, and questioning the character of God, and then it, it's like he, he stops and puts a stake in the sand and, and says, I'm going to remember the objective facts of God. I'm I'm going to move out of just my, my thoughts. You see, what happens when we get in a time of trouble is we can enter into sort of an echo chamber of, of our own experiences and our thoughts and our feelings. And those, that little world bends our, and shapes our truth so that there are people who spend their whole Christian life with a bent version of God, a bent vision of God, a bent understanding of God that's been formed not by the Word of God, but been formed by their experience and formed by their thoughts about their interpretation of their experience and how they feel about that experience. Nancy Piercy calls this um, sola experientia, right? We, we, we're supposed to believe in sola scriptura, the Bible alone. But many, many people live, in fact, by experience alone. That's the ultimate authority in their life. This is what I know. I experience something, and these are my thoughts about it and my feelings about it, and that determines my truth about my world, about people, about God himself. Well, the the problem with that little echo chamber is there's no hope there. No light can get in. There's no help You're just stuck in the dark night of your soul. And Asaph, you see here, by the the power and the moving of the Holy Spirit, moves out of the echo chamber of his experience and his thoughts and his feelings, and and, and he takes a stand, you see, on what is God really like? How has God actually revealed himself? What has God actually done, actually accomplished? 
He moves out of the, the little world of his subjective interpretations and into the, the world of divine revelations. This is what I will appeal to. Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. You see, we don't have to interpret God according to our experiences or our thoughts or feelings. We can interpret God according to His revelation, according to what He's actually done. This is marvelous medicine for the soul. He begins to think about who God actually is and what God is, has done. How did God deal with Israel when they were in their day of trouble? When they were being subjected to harsh, brutal slavery there in the land of Egypt, how did God, how did God deal with them? How did God respond to them? Well, we know the story, and, he, and Asaph thinks about that story. He thinks about the Exodus. The people cried out to God, and he heard them, and he delivered them and saved them from all their trouble. And as, as Asaph thinks about the acts of God and, and his, his saving deeds and miracles and power, the focus of the, of, the, of the psalm shifts. And so where we once were reading, I, 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 the first part of the psalm is just littered with, with I. I thought, I meditated, I groaned. Now it's you. Look at verses 13 through 19. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? Before he was asking, what trouble is as great as my trouble? What heartache is as great as my heartache? Now it's what God is so great as my God. You, verse 14, are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. Verse 15, with your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. His thoughts are fixed. On God. And not just God in a generic sense, but God is the saving God, the God who has intervened in human history, the God who has worked great acts of, of redemption for his people. Verses, uh, verse 19, we have the same. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And Asaph recounts the story of God's deliverance in uh, verses 16 and 17 and 18, uh, a poetic retelling of the Exodus event. As God led his people through the Red Sea, delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh and bringing them into the land of promise. The Exodus event, of course, is the great Old Testament illustration of God's saving delight, God's saving desire, his saving purpose, his intent. This is what he had promised Abraham so long ago. And God's purposes never fall to the ground. And so the Exodus event is, is the evidence of God's faithfulness, the evidence of his power, the evidence of his saving desire. And what God desires, he accomplishes. Well, you could see how that could be helpful to someone like Asaph in a day of trouble. There are very basic lessons to be learned from God's redemption of Israel. For one, it means that trouble doesn't mean desertion. Trouble doesn't mean desertion. It, it, may, may, it means deliverance. If you think about Israel standing at the Red Sea, uh, who brought them there stuck between the sea and Pharaoh's 
uh, approaching army. Who brought them there? That was a tremendous day of trouble. Well, God brought them there. Who brought them into Egypt in the first place so they became slaves? Well, God brought them there too. But you see, trouble didn't, the trouble they experienced didn't mean desertion. It meant that, well, in their case, God was delivering them. Trouble in our life doesn't mean that God is punishing us. In fact, for the Christian, it, def- it, it absolutely means that God is delivering us, usually from our own sinful selves, that God is, is using us in a way we couldn't imagine. God is, is shaping and molding us. Spurgeon talks about the, the benefit of suffering in his own life. And he humorously says this. He says, if some men I know uh, could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. How does he know that? Well, because he'd experienced that in his own life. He'd experienced the power of God through suffering uh, to change him. I, I, I think it's Malcolm Mugridge uh, that said, uh, as I look back over my life, he was like 80 years old, as I look back over my life, I have to say that um, everything that I learned of value, I learned through suffering. That's a scary thought, but it's, it's absolutely true. The great things that we learn about God and about His mercy and His faithfulness, His love, His compassion, the, the great lessons that we learn and the way we learn them most deeply and in a transformative way, we learn through suffering. But Asaph also learned that God's purposes in his life is, is always redemptive. God's purposes in the, life, in the lives of His children is always redemptive and, and God is, is a shepherd leading us. He's leading us. I love verse 19, um, you led your people, uh, verse, um, excuse me, let me find the right psalm. <clears throat> verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. We don't always understand what God is doing. But you led your people like a flock. You see, what Asaph is reflecting on is that the Lord is my shepherd. God, God is my shepherd. And I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, right? He's, he restores my soul. Leads me in paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. That's, that's what my shepherd does. And even though I do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though I walk through great trial and heartache and hardship as God leads us there. We don't need to fear evil there. We don't need to fear harm there. Why not? For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil all gathered around, all seeking to devour, but God prepares a table right there in the time of trouble so that my cup overflows. And I'm convinced that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do I know that? Because the Lord is my shepherd. Because God has made me one of his sheep. I'm I'm, I'm part of the flock of God. You see, friends, one of the greatest comforts that we can have in the in in day of trouble is just that knowledge. I belong to the people of God. He's, he's made me one of his sheep, and, and, and he doesn't lose his sheep. He cares for them. He knows every one of us by name. And so the, even though the, the hardship isn't, isn't over in Asaph's life, everything's changed. It, it, the, the trouble might not be over, but the struggle is over. 
The wrestling with God is over. He, he's come to a precious place of rest. If this is what God is like, if, if we can trust that God is, as He's revealed Himself to be in the pages of Scripture, as He's revealed Himself to be in His mighty acts of redemption, saving His people, and I belong by faith to His people, well, then this is who God is for me. God is not against me. He's a shepherd who loves me and who's leading me. And friends, that's exactly the confidence that we can have as we go through our times of trouble, we have a salvation story that's only shadowed in the Exodus, right? We have a salvation story vastly greater where God gave his only son to be our greater Moses to lead us through the great sea of, of death and condemnation on dry ground so we are not harmed. And Jesus has brought us into the confidence, the assurance of the love of our Heavenly Father, the one who loved us before the foundation of the world and gave us to Jesus, His Son, to be saved. And our experiences then, our, our interpretation of our, of our circumstances, our trials, our thoughts and feelings have to be formed by the cross. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, right? If, if God loved us, so loved us, Will he not also freely with Jesus give us all things? we got to learn to read the mind of God in the moment of trouble according to what he's already accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. I, I tell myself and, and, and others so often, if, if God put his own precious son on a cross to endure the wrath of hell for my sin, I know he's not playing games with my life. And he's not playing games with yours. He's not disinterested. He loves you deeply. He cares for you more than you can imagine. And though maybe his footprints are not seen, you don't know exactly how he's leading here. It's his path that you're on. He's made sure of that. And he's going to lead all the way. All the way home. We sang earlier in the service, can we still dread God's displeasure? Who to save freely gave his most cherished treasure. Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, gave up his life for us. And Jesus, that great shepherd, was raised again to life. And that Jesus is leading us. He is our shepherd. He's the one who will lead us to the green pastures of our eternal home. And every single circumstance that we experience in this life is a part of his leading us to that life. And so Psalm 77 just calls us to trust in God to get out of the echo chamber of our circumstances and our thoughts and our feelings and to, to rest in the revelation given to us in Scripture of what God is really like and what God has really done and what God has really purposed and to know His purposes shall never fail. Not in the case of any of God's children and not in the case of your own circumstance. And so we can rest in Him. May God grant it. Amen. Father in heaven, you know the, the, the hurting hearts that are here tonight. And Jesus, I thank you that we can have the confidence that you've led us in these hard places. You've not lost us. You've not abandoned us. You've, you're not rejecting us. You're not punishing us. But you've led us here so that we could stand in this hard place in faith, through tears, 
but holding on to the hand of our shepherd who loves us and who is leading us through this life to the life eternal. And so, Lord, I pray that you would encourage and comfort the hearts of your people tonight. I pray, Lord, that as we arm ourselves with with thoughts about who you really are and what what you've gloriously done for us in Jesus and all that you have promised to us in Christ, who is a God so great as our God? And that in the midst of our trouble, Lord, we would celebrate the greatness of God, the wonder of our salvation in Jesus. And that our lives could then be defined by the strength that comes from God and the joy and the peace that come from believing in Him. And God will give you the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing Psalm 77 together. To God will I direct my prayer and He will make my needs His care. Let's stand together and sing.
encourage you to do that this week. Dwell on the, on the reality of God, uh, what He's done for you, His promised love to you, His goodness and faithfulness all along the way. And then speak to Him in prayer as we talked about this morning. Let's live by breathing this week as we trust the Lord. After the benediction, we'll close. The Lord is my salvation. What God is as great as our God. Receive the benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory and majesty, power and dominion through Jesus Christ before all ages, now and forevermore. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you till Christ come again. Amen.